Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, April 12th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes brings us details on her conversation with Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland on the latest Canadian sanctions on Russia and federal budget reaction from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Next, we hear about the increased interest in fortified homes and underground bunkers during this tumultuous time. We speak with Brian Camden from Texas-based company Hardin structures who says the demand includes canadian clients is home ownership becoming unattainable in our country we speak with mortgage broker leah zlatkin for a look at the current state of the mortgage market and a forecast on what rates may look like in the coming months with a federal interest rate hike on the horizon and finally she has no problem mixing business with pleasure we catch up with the travel lady leslie cater who's currently on a river cruise in eastern europe Leslie gives us details on the latest restrictions in place as the travel industry gets back up and running. Last week's federal budget leads the conversation in the latest episode of the West Block with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes joins us now. Hi, Mercedes. Hey, guys. How are you? Excellent. Thank you for being with us once again. I know you had uh, quite the jam-packed show on the weekend. You spoke with uh, Minister Freeland, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, Conservative MP Dan Albas. So let's start with the latest on Canada's sanctions against Russia in the war. Uh, We'll get to the budget in just a minute. That was, uh, you know, old news, I suppose, by now. But we'll talk a little bit about it. But uh, latest on on Canada's sanctions and sort of where we're at with with how Canada's feeling in terms of uh, military might in that country. Yeah, so the latest round of sanctions basically target the Russian defense industry, which, of course, is helping to prop up um, the invasion of Ukraine that has happened and the war crimes that are being documented that are happening there uh, to civilians, which I know you guys have talked about on your show. We've talked about it on our show. Um, it's, it's absolutely horrific. So this is yet another round of sanctions. Um, there are still certainly further steps that Canada could choose to take. For example, kicking out Russian diplomats from Canada. That's something that some European countries have done. Um, As you know, Mr. Zelensky has been calling for Russia to be kicked off the Permanent Security Council at the United Nations, saying that uh, they they have no right to be there. That's another thing that Canada has not yet taken a position on. Um, And I asked the Deputy Prime Minister about both of those, and she wouldn't really answer um, on either. But, But there are further escalation tactics, obviously, that Canada can take. Um, There was a significant amount of money, half a billion dollars in the budget to provide military and financial aid to Ukraine. Um, And that is in part because Canada is just not a big enough military to really be able to continue to provide weapons to Ukraine out of our stocks without vastly depleting it and in some cases taking years to resupply it, which creates a problem for our national security. So they've taken the approach instead, which uh, the Ukrainian government had asked for, um, which is essentially here's money you can go and buy weapons with it, and then they can buy what they need. Uh, but but certainly, obviously, that situation, it seems like every day that goes by, we're seeing more and more deeply disturbing uh, and widespread reports of just horrific human rights abuses. So that's the extent of it, uh, Mercedes, with uh, Minister Christian Freeland, uh, when it comes to the military and the budgets ahead. It's kind of a one-time thing. Are we seeing more consistency built into this budget for military moving ahead? 
Well, the money for the military was not as much as was expected, and, and that um, that five hundred million is is unrelated to our defense spending domestically. There was about eight billion ish dollars, depending on how you count it. Um, but a lot of that is going to NORAD modernization. That's the North American Aerospace Defense Command. They're in charge of, you remember them from 9-11, trying to shoot down planes that they're trying to fly into buildings. It's North American defense, and that had to be done. The Americans have been pushing that very hard for years, and it's important to Canada's safety and security because we get a lot out of NORAD without paying very much. Um, that allows us to defend Canada in a way that we otherwise couldn't because we just don't have the money. Um, there is still a lot of other things that need money. Uh, in the military, especially things like recruiting and retention. But the sort of trick to that is that pouring money on it won't solve it quickly. I mean, when you have 15-year sergeants retiring, it takes 15 years to replace them. There's culture problems that have to be fixed, which is part of the reason why people are leaving, and money doesn't fix that. And as you'll remember and can see with the F-35, which we're now finally going to get, more than 12 years, maybe 15 years into talking about this, Canada's procurement system is really broken. And so you can pour money on it, but it could still take you 15 years to procure something. So there are changes that need to be made there, and it's not clear how this government is going to fix it. No previous government has managed to. Part of that is because there's no single minister in charge of military procurement. And in any political situation where you don't have a single point of accountability and a minister who you can make squirm, it can be very hard to get things done. Did you did you kind of touch that point with Minister Christian Freeland or Finance Minister Christian Freeland when you talked to her or, or that's not really her, her you know, her uh, area of expertise, uh, I guess? I mean, we didn't really get heavily into defense spending yeah. because she's the Deputy Prime Minister and, and the Finance Minister. Yeah. She's in charge of the money. Uh, the fixing it would be more procurement defense. Frankly, the Prime Minister would have to make a decision to put someone in his cabinet who is solely responsible for procurement. Stephen Harper kind of tried that with Julian Fantino, but didn't really make him a full minister or give him full power, and it was disastrous because all that happened uh, was massive infighting between he and Peter McKay, both trying to be the more important minister at defense. Um, so that model wasn't wasn't continued. But uh, with, with Christopher Freeland, we got to mostly Ukraine and a little bit on the budget. We talked about why there wasn't health care in the budget, uh, health care transfers to the provinces, which is something they've been asking for. And the other thing that we identified and asked her about and didn't really get a response on either was why there was nothing on long-term care, uh, because that was something they talked on and on about in the pandemic, that we've learned the lessons of all our vulnerable elderly. There's nothing in the budget about it of any kind of substance. Um, and what one economist said to me that was interesting is that he thought they managed to kind of balance it by avoiding tying themselves to long-term serious spending relating to an aging population because that's very expensive. It's also a huge need, but that's why you're not seeing health care and long-term care in the budget. Mercedes, you also had the chance to speak with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Uh, does he believe the agreement between the NDP and the Liberals has paid off uh, with what has happened in the federal budget? He says he does. He says that um, they put forward exactly the same dental care plan last year, and the Liberals and the Conservatives voted against it, and this year the Liberals went ahead with it. So even though it's only a small piece of dental care, this budget only takes care of children 12 and under whose families make less than $90,000 a year. So obviously you're, you're prioritizing vulnerable kids uh, who are from lower-income families, um, not an entire dental care or pharmacare. He says he doesn't view it as a failure that that's not in the budget. By basically them backing the Liberals, they've bought time. 
and that time allows the Liberals to put more in each budget, but not all at once. He insists that, that he has faith that this is going to happen, and if it doesn't, that he would pull out of it. Um, but it, there was not sort of the huge social spending we thought there might be in this budget as a result of that deal. Dental was really the main thing that we saw there. No big shocker that Conservatives are planning to vote against this federal budget. When does that vote come down, and, and what do the Conservatives say they actually wanted to see? The Conservatives, it was interesting because they initially came out and went after it as a big spending budget. It is a big spending budget, but relative to the previous Liberal budgets, it was not that big spending. Um, It's interesting to see them changing gears and tone. The Conservatives didn't. They still say it's a tax and spend budget. Um, They wanted to see a GST holiday that was in their campaign platform, maybe GST taken off the gas pumps. Um, So that was sort of where they came from. I imagine they're going to try to propose those changes. I don't the Liberal government accepting them because they don't need them to pass the budget. Uh, but the Conservatives not happy with this, saying that it's too much money and it's not putting enough money back in people's pockets in their view of it. But it was interesting to me because some of the things in there in housing were actually quite similar to what was in the Conservative platform. Mercedes, thanks uh, so much for your time and uh, have a great t- Tuesday. Thanks, you too. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Interest in fallout shelters, bunkers and fortified homes has gone through the roof in Canada as people worry about the pandemic, possible nuclear war, the situation in Ukraine. Well, one company in the United States called Hardened Structures has seen a huge uptick of interest in large vacation style homes that they build that are also ballistic rated, off grid capable and sustainable. And here to tell us all about them is Brian Camden, president of Hardened Structures and Hardened Shelters out of Virginia Beach. Good morning to you, Brian. Thanks for being with us. Good morning to you also, and thanks for having us. Fascinated by these homes, I was looking at pictures, and this is not your typical underground bunker. These are actually fortified homes, nice looking inside and out, quite surprised by that. So tell us how, how your business kind of came about and you know how you've seen interest in your business growing. Well, here in the U.S., probably 75% of our work is the high-end custom home uh, with the underground shelter, like you just described, it's um, we've probably got maybe a dozen of them underway right now. Most of them are located in rural areas, um, a lot of times near ski resorts or vacation areas. The clients use them as a um, secondary home, um, mainly to go and have vacations. Um, they're described as generational homes by the clients. These are houses that are designed to last, you know, 100 years or more and as a gathering place for the uh, family and close friends. If there ever was a crisis or the need ever came up where everyone needed to kind of maybe move out of the cities and go someplace where you have a secure home, a secure refuge that's well stocked and it can operate independently and uh, sustain itself through uh, most difficult times and for extended durations. Well, let's break this down, Brian, because outside looking in and inside <laughs> looking around, it looks, you know, like, like a house, like a, you know, a nice looking home. When we talk about the underground shelter portion, what, if you can kind of uh, verbally walk us through it, what does this look like and, and what sorts of supplies are in something like this? The underground shelter portion is all driven. Uh, we follow a, procedure actually established by the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. It's the size of the shelter 
dictated by the occupant load, how many people will go in there, and the duration time. A standard uh, overnight stay, you need about 100 square foot per person. As the duration time exceeds and gets longer and longer, you need more, 120, 150, 200 square feet per person. Most of the shelters are designed for a 30-day occupation. You figure that'd be about the time radiation fallout would abide uh, sufficiently enough for people to come out. The shelters, um, the configuration, are each uh, each one is specific to the client's occupancy. Whether or not is it a family, is it a corporation? Uh, are they doing private individual bedrooms? Are there bunk rooms? Um, usually, there's a general kitchen and dining area, uh, a children's area, an exercise area. If you bring pets in, that's a whole different problem, especially in uh, as an engineer, as, as in sewage disposal. Um, they're all designed to what's called shelter dynamics, which is the science of people being underground for a prolonged period. And here again, it's it, it's different. It depends on whether it's a military application, commercial application, or a family application. And then what is the makeup of that family? Is it So, Brian, the above-ground part then, it, uh, the house, the actual physical house, not the underground, the, the bunker sort of area, is, is the home above-ground? Is it fully nuclear-proof? What does it look like that makes it different? No, it is not nuclear-proof. The Almost all of these threat event scenarios, whether it's a nuclear exchange or breakdown of civilization, electromagnetic pulse, whatever, the house is designed to be almost like a fortress. It's ballistic rated, um, usually to a UL level of five, which is one round from an AK-47 or a 30-06 hunting rifle, which would probably be the most common weapon out there. Uh, the windows are ballistic rated. Uh, the doors are forced entry protected, but it looks like a custom home unless you actually went in and looked at the wall thickness and the windows in the front door. You really could not tell it. The house itself has to be able to sustain itself independently, which means you have to have your own energy, whether that be solar, wind, or sometimes we'll do a um, geothermal. A lot of times we like to do prepackaged hydroelectrics if there's an active stream on the site. And then the storage, you got to figure that you have to have enough storage to sustain everybody for at least six months. And if the threat event scenario that the client requires has a long-term component, in other words, they're saying that it'll take five, six years for a civilization to recover, then you have to have Crop cultivation, you have to have some type of uh, animal husbandry in there, stuff like that. But again, everything is client-driven. Yeah. Well, I, I would wonder if, if the price is client-driven as well. <laughs> what do you, Is there a range that you can get into the market for? These houses are all net zero. A cost form generally runs right at around 350 to $400 a square foot or the above-ground home, depending on the level of interior finishes. The underground shelter portion, which is all cast in place, reinforced concrete, will run anywhere from $1,000 to $3,500 a square foot. 
It ain't cheap, but it's fascinating. Can I just ask you quickly before we let you go, Brian, are you getting requests or interest from Alberta in Canada? Uh, we actually have projects going on in Canada right now, Ontario and Montreal. Nothing in Alberta yet, huh? Uh, no, ma'am. Well, yeah, nothing is that I'm aware of. Well, I suspect your phone um, may start ringing after this. We thank you for your time, Brian. Appreciate it this morning. All right. Y'all take care now. You too. Brian Camden, president of Hardened Structures. You can go online, hardenedstructures.com. And is home ownership becoming increasingly unattainable for millions of Canadians? And what does the mortgage forecast look like? With some insight this morning, we're joined by Leah Zlatkin, who is a licensed mortgage broker and expert with LowestRates.ca. Hi, Leah. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Sue. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Hey, what did you see in the federal budget that might affect people who are applying for a mortgage? So in terms of, you know, the area that we're talking about, Calgary, Edmonton, you know, I don't think that the federal budget is really considering our area to be overheating and the federal budget measures don't really appear to be targeting this market. So there's, you know, a new foreign buyer ban that's going to be coming into effect and a couple other things that are set to cool the market, but it doesn't really affect our area here in Edmonton and Calgary. What about this stress test? How does that affect a an ability for somebody to get into the market these days. Yeah, so the stress test is very interesting. So what's actually happened is that the stress test has remained consistent. It's either you're going to get stress tested at 5.25 or you're going to get stress tested at the mortgage rate that you're looking at plus 2%, whichever is higher. So that has not changed. But the change is, in effect, that fixed rates have in fact gone up. And so when you're looking at fixed rates close to 3.89%, then you're going to have to qualify at 5.89% compared to previously 5.25. So because rates are going up, it does affect the, the stress test upon which a client or a customer is being evaluated. And because of that, you can afford a little bit less than you would prior. Okay, so next question then is, you know, how are current homeowners impacted if they want to perhaps renew a mortgage? Yeah, so this is a great question. In terms of people who are looking to refinance or switch lenders, if you had any kind of changes during COVID, maybe you lost a job or maybe something changed and your income is a little bit less, you may not qualify for the same mortgage that you had qualified for before. And if you are in fact looking at you know, any kind of stress testing options. Um, You may not qualify under the stress test now for a current fixed mortgage rate. If you previously had qualified at 5.25 and nothing has changed, you still may not qualify. But if you are looking to go variable, you still will qualify at that 5.25. So if nothing has changed, your best option for renewal or a switch is going to be a variable rate. Let's talk about Bank of Canada's upcoming announcement. What do we know about it? As of right now, everybody is predicting that there will be an increase to the Bank of Canada overnight rate, which will affect variable rate mortgages only. And so at this point in time, we are predicting a 0.5% increase. Generally, we do see a 0.25% increase each time the Bank of Canada makes an announcement. This time we are predicting a 0.5% because they are trying to cool the general market in Canada. And this is a bit to combat inflation as well. Lots to understand, lots to know about. We can send people to lowestrates.ca. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Lee. Appreciate it.
Absolutely. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Leah Zlatkin is a licensed mortgage broker and expert with lowestrates.ca. Travel Tuesday. Time to find out how much closer to normal the travel industry is. Joining us this morning is the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Hi, Leslie. Good morning, Sue. How are you doing? You're calling us live from, I understand, is it a newly christened ship on a river somewhere in Europe? Where the heck are you, Leslie? That's right. I'm on the Danube River in Bratislava. And the ship is decorated from top to bottom with flowers. We're just waiting for the naming ceremony and that bottle of champagne to go crashing into the side. And Avalon will have a brand new river cruise ship. Wow. Wow. What a fun experience. Yeah, yeah. It's been amazing. And I've actually been cruising a little while. I've been here a week before on another ship going down the lower Danube, traveling from Budapest all the way into Romania. And a lot of people said to me before I went, they said, you know, I don't know if that's a wise idea and should you be going there? So I did go with a little bit of concern. What is this going to be like? Honestly, I'm not being callous about the situation in Ukraine. We know it's terrible what's going on there. But everywhere I went, it was life as normal, huh. So, which was very interesting mm-hmm. to see. Good to see for yeah. those who want to travel and good to see for the industry. And I'm wondering, uh, Leslie, and yeah, we can talk about what it's like to cruise in 2022, but I'm more interested in, in the river cruises themselves in that it seems to me that they've really come up in popularity. What do I have to know if I'm going on a river cruise versus if I've done an ocean cruise before? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, you know, a river cruise is so different to an ocean cruise in that you're going through the heart of the country. When you do ocean cruises, you're out in the ocean and you're kind of popping into ports. So I think it's a very much more immersive experience. And what river cruisers like Avalon are doing now, they're taking this approach of activity and discovery. So, for example, we went this morning on a hike, and it was a hike, Sue, like some of the hikes you've been doing. Yes. Way uphill into the vineyards around Bratislava. And, of course, along the way, we had to do some wine testing. So they gave us these neat little bags that we put around our necks with a wine glass inside. And the guy was waiting in the vineyards with uh, cooler boxes with beautiful wine for us to sample. I don't have that at the top of any of the hikes that I do, Leslie. So clearly I'm not doing it right. Uh, I'm curious as to whether you have to mask on board right now, what that kind of looks like if anybody's thinking of a, a big cruise or a smaller version. Right. Now, on the previous cruise I went on, we had to mask when, unless we were actually seated at an area. Um, On this particular cruise with Avalon, we don't have to mask on board because they did give us an antigen test. The minute we stepped on board and waited for the result of that, which was negative, yay. I was was surprised by that because I, I hadn't been expecting it. And I guess I didn't really say to them, well, what would happen if I was positive? That didn't come up. Nobody on the ship tested positive. So we're all allowed to walk around the ship without masks. But when we get off the ship and we go on transportation like coaches and museums, then we have to mask. That's important. Yeah, absolutely. Just follow those rules. You can Mm -hmm. still go on vacation. Thank you so much for your time, Leslie. (laughs) Have Have a happy end of your cruise. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. I'll see you soon. Leslie Cater, The Travel Lady, online, thetravellady.ca and on social media at The Travel Lady. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.